Thanks, you guys. What a privilege for me to be here with you. Uh, I have known your church, respected your church. Uh, Bob was a friend of mine years back, kind of a mentor who invested in me when we were planting a church. And uh, it's just an honor for me to be with you today and to talk about Abraham. But as uh, Christy mentioned, I cut my teeth in ministry in Africa. And in Africa, you don't just stand up and preach to people you haven't met yet. You got to tell a little bit about yourself. So um, I grew up in Mississippi. I grew up in a home where my dad didn't believe in God, where my mom did, but she was kind of of the generation where the wife follows the husband's lead. So my parents kind of compromised. They would take my sister and I to church, drop us off, and then come back and pick us up when it was over. And I remember that I was attracted to Jesus um, from an early age, but I really didn't become a follower of Christ till I was 16. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that uh, a little later in the message. But I uh, got interested in missions when I did a, a, a one-week mission trip in Appalachia among the elderly and the poor in the coal mining district there. And somehow having come to believe in Jesus at 16 and then doing this where I was in, enacting that, putting it into action for people in need. It kind of lit me up and I'm like, maybe I'm supposed to be a missionary. And that was kind of with me. I went to college in Tennessee and when I graduated, I went and I was a missionary in Congo in Central Africa for three years. Uh, hardest thing I've ever done, the best thing I've ever done. Uh, I may look like a white dude up here, but if you cut me, I'm really more African than white in a lot of ways. Those people gave me a ton more than I ever gave them and taught me a ton more. And I came back not really sure, am I a pastor, am I a missionary, but also feeling like um, I'm always going to live on that bridge in between the haves and the have-nots. And I've kind of been a little bit of a Robin Hood who takes the riches on both sides to the people on the other, because both sides are rich in areas that the other side is poor in. Um, and I've been so blessed to do that. I'm married to Christy, who is here with me. We have uh, three kids, uh, Corey, Annie, and Benji. Um, the two older girls, they're uh, away at college. They're watching online. Hey, girls. And their boyfriends are watching online, or at least they better be if they intend to keep dating my daughters. <laughs> and my son Benji is uh, here as well. But we've ministered in the Bay Area for about 30 years now. And um, my dad, who I told you didn't believe in God, he became a follower of Jesus at age 76. Um, yeah. You, you're praying for people? 25 years for me. Um, and you know what brought him? He's a Harvard Business School grad. I took him with me to Africa and to India among the untouchables, and he could not deny the power of God to transform these people who maybe had a second-degree education to have more character, courage, integrity than he'd ever seen in his life. And he said, okay, there's got to be a God that makes that happen. And um, in... So I've been pastoring in the Bay Area in uh, almost exactly 11 years ago today. Um, I was biking down a hill in San Carlos, going 45 miles an hour. A car didn't see me and pulled out. I T-boned into the side, went up and over, broke my neck in two places, severe brain injury. And it was kind of one of those moments in life where you, you kind of measure life. Was that before the accident or ac after the accident? Because it was a big deal. I'm still struggling with uh, migraines till now. Uh, but it was a two or three year recovery period where I was kind of sidelined from ministry. So I was kind of getting my capacities back and capabilities back. 
Then a couple of mid-peninsula churches took a chance on me and hired me. And I didn't know, can I still do this stuff or not? But God showed me, you know what, even when we're, we're weak, maybe especially when we're weak, we finally become usable. And so I was back in ministry. I've been at Westgate for two and a half years. I love it. I'm really happy there, and um, I'm honored to be with you today. So, Lord, we ask you to come as we get into your word. Lord, speak to us. We're a bunch of different people with a bunch of different life situations. You know how to apply your life to each of us, and we enter your kingdom, whether we're here live, whether we're online, and we ask you to do so. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So David Tisch, who wrote this book, he gave kind of a high-level overview of this study of Moses last week, but this week we're going to start getting into the nuts and bolts of his story, and we're going to look at a really famous passage when Abraham was called. He didn't know God from the man in the moon, but God came and turned his world upside down. But before we do that, we're going to look at the kind of the, the culture and the cast of characters in Abraham's life, and we're going to look at Genesis 11, 27 to 32. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they arrived in Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. So I'm going to push the pause button there. That sounds like kind of an odd passage to, to start with, like it's just kind of the nuts and bolts and kind of the cast of characters like at the end of a movie. But you really, to understand Abram's life, you kind of got to understand the culture he was a part of and the people he came from. Um, if you go to a mall and you've never been to the mall, what do you look for first? Look, look for the sign. And it has the, the red star that says, you are here. And then you can kind of figure out where to go. We're kind of looking for that red star in Abram's life. Where did he start from? Because that'll help us understand where he went. And we're going to understand a little bit of his culture too, because you can't understand how extraordinary Abraham became and how extraordinary the God he came to know was until you compare it to where all of this started. I didn't know how important culture was till I went to Africa. And I was sent to UCLA to learn a little bit of Swahili, and the teacher was a Tanzanian woman, and she was trying to teach me to say, hello, which is hujambo, what's your news, what, what's up? And I kept saying hujamba, which means to pass gas. <laughs> and then she was trying to teach me how to say goodbye, and that's tutao nana, we shall see each other again. And I kept saying tutao wana, which means we shall marry each other. So I got to Africa, and those people are like, you are one strange little white man. <laughs> but we kind of have to understand the, the culture we're dealing with. So Terah, that's Abraham's dad. Nahor and Haran, his brothers. Sarai, his wife. Lot, his nephew. 
And they all lived in this area called the Fertile Crescent. So it's this area in between kind of the Tigris and the Euphrates River. And in this day and age, the norm was a little bit more of a nomadic existence. Uh, the farming techniques weren't sophisticated enough that you could just plop down anywhere and garden and, and live there your whole life. But if you were in this area, like an area where there were large rivers, it was so fertile that civilizations grew up. You could live there, stay there, acquire wealth, and civilizations could be built. And so this is where Ur of the Chaldees was. First point I want to make to you about Abram's background, though, is Abram was not born a good Christian boy. Abram was not born a good Christian boy. We figure Abraham, we man of faith, somebody who inspires us still today, surely that's because he was always a man of faith. He must have grown up that way. He knew all this stuff, and that's why God chose him. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, that's not, that, what, that is who Abraham became after God got a hold of him, but it's not where he started. So Ur was the center of pagan worship. It was the center of the worship of the moon god. And lest we think that that was kind of something that Abraham's family was not a part of, that's not true. If you look at the various, the names of the family members, Terah, Abraham's dad, his, na his name means the divine protector of the moon. You look at Sarah, his wife's name, that means the female partner of the moon god. You look at Milcah, the daughter-in-law of Abram, that means, her name means the daughter of the moon god. So this was shot through their whole family. This is who they were. This is what they believed. And so whatever it was about, about Abram that made God choose him, it wasn't that he was just way better than everybody else. He was just a dude who worshiped the moon god like everybody else. Second thing that I want to talk about is that the gods of Abraham's day were night and dif day different from the God of the Bible. They weren't similar in any way to the God you and I worship in this place. If I were to say God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit to you guys and say, what words come to mind? You might, think, you might say love, kindness, grace, goodness, all-powerful all-knowing, all of these things, those might be words you'd come, that would come to mind for you. If I were to have said the word God to Abram, none of those words would have come to mind because the gods they worshiped were not like that. First characteristic that, comes, that jumps out to me about them is they were unconcerned. They, they, we were not children to be nurtured. We were nuisances to be barely tolerated. They were unconcerned. Their worship, they were kind of up in heaven, living their best life, kind of a frat party on steroids, and people would, had to do something amazing to maybe get those gods to notice them and throw them a few scraps from the table. That was the way gods were. If you look at the religious, the, the great stories of the day, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the story of Hercules, these were all about human beings trying to do something amazing enough that maybe these unconcerned gods would take notice of them and bless them in some way. But they were unconcerned, basically. You can kind of see it in the architecture of the, their places of worship. This is a ziggurat. That was their church. They're all over this part of the world. Um, the Tower of Babel was a ziggurat. And they were, if you can see up the middle of those, a ziggurat is basically, it's a structure to sustain a stairway. 
because we've got to get high enough up that maybe we can get to God's attention. And when we get up there, we've got to give a a sacrifice that's amazing and maybe they will notice. But this was how life was. Tower of Babel was was the tallest because maybe if we go even higher, maybe then they'll notice. Maybe then they'll care. Second thing about these gods, they were morally suspect. They were morally suspect. Parties, orgies, incest. They're oftentimes worshiped by child sacrifice, by worshipers slashing themselves with swords. If we do enough awful things to ourselves, maybe the gods will love us. They were bigger than us, but they were not better than us. And many times they were a lot worse in terms of moral way of relating to the world. And lastly, they were limited. They were limited. They were not the Lord of heaven and earth. They were not the God of the universe. They were not the God who had the whole world in his hands. They were limited in terms of their domain. There was the God of, the, of fertility. There was the God of my crops. There's the God of warfare, the God of the sun, the God of the moon. You almost needed a Rolodex or a really good app on your phone to keep track of who do I need to pray for for this? Because they were limited in terms of where their power applied. And they were limited in terms of geography. So if you were to move from Los Gatos to New York, you had to pick new gods because you needed gods who had, lo- who had mojo in that area because these gods were limited. Unconcerned, morally suspect, and limited. So that was Abraham's conception of God. That's, if you said God to Abraham, that's what came to mind for him. Until, until he was encountered by a God who could not have been more different than that. Genesis eleven thirty one. Terah took his son Abraham, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot Lot went with him. Okay, so if God comes to Abram and he says, Abram, I want you to leave. I want you to go to the land I'm going to show you. If the Lord comes to you and says, I want you to move, what's your first question? Where? He says, Abram, I want you to start moving. I'm going to show you where, but but I want you to start moving. He said, Abraham, though you have no children, though your wife is infertile, I'm telling you, I'm going to bless you with a child. And not only am I going to bless you with a child, but I am, dis- nations are going to come from your descendants. See, back then there wasn't really a conception of eternal life, so very well formed like we have it. You lived on through your descendants. So Abram and Sarah, this is probably the most core felt need in their whole being. You're going to give us a child? And then our child is going to lead to nations. And I'm going to make your name great. So great that 3,500 years later, here we are in this room, still being inspired by the life of this man whose world got turned upside down when a very different kind of God encountered him. I'll have your back, 
Whoever blesses you, I will bless. I will curse those who curse you. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. That probably was a a mind blower to Abraham too. He didn't know exactly how that was going to play out. But you and I do. Because through his descendants, a Savior was going to be born who would seek and save the lost from every nation, tongue, and tribe on earth. And all of this was going to come out of this undeserved blessing. Abraham didn't climb a ziggurat. He didn't do anything amazing. This God out of the blue for no good reason comes and blesses him like he won the super mega lotto of love from the God of the universe. And it turned his world upside down. And the point I want to make as we start turning this towards what do you and I learn from this story? That is God pursues us. Very different from the gods back then. This God, the one you and I know, he pursues us relentlessly and he does it for our own good. He pursues us to do good. In utter contrast to the gods of that day, the God of the Bible pursues us. Abram didn't earn this. He was just a workaday moon worshiping dude. But God broke in and he changed everything. He didn't climb a ziggurat. He didn't do an amazing deed. God intervened. He loved him and he changed him. I told you earlier that I grew up being dropped off at church, being picked up when it was over. My early theology in my life, I knew I was attracted to Jesus. He seemed like the kindest, nicest man I'd ever heard about. But my theology really was, I think this is about being super good, be a nice guy, follow the golden rule. God will sweep little sins under the carpet, stay away from the biggies and it'll all work out. And that worked for me for about 16 years till I got involved in what to me seemed to be the biggies. And I didn't have any way to process that. To me, my my image of God was God was like Thor with a big hammer. And he he may love you, but if you get out of line, he's going to squash you. And I was, I had lined myself up for a good squash. And that's, I was depressed. I was hopeless. I was very, very discouraged. I got invited by a young woman in my high school who was a follower of Jesus to a Sadie Hawkins Valentine's dinner put on by a Pentecostal church in Corinth, Mississippi at the Holiday Inn. And I didn't want to go. I was feeling so discouraged in my life. We got in the car to go. It was cold and gray and rainy, just like I felt on my insides. That's kind of Northern Mississippi in the wintertime. It's too cold to do anything, but not cold enough to snow. And we got there and this guy who later became a friend of mine, he's speaking and I couldn't tell you to this day what, what his message was. But for the first time in my life, it got through to me that God doesn't sweep anything under the carpet, but that Jesus went to the cross and he paid the full penalty, that there's nothing too big for him to make it right. There's nothing too small that doesn't need what he did for us on the cross. And all I can tell you is that it felt like 80 pounds of toxic sludge rolled off my shoulders and I came alive again and I fell in love with Jesus and it it rocked my world. I didn't build a ziggurat. I didn't do anything. I didn't even make one move towards God, but he came and met me and he turned my world upside down and it's never, it's never gone back. It ain't ever going back. You know, and it's not just me, my biggest mentor in life. You know, I've told you I'm, I'm, I'm more African than American. A man named Colini, he's an African man. He grew up very anti-Christianity. He said, this is the God of the white man. I want nothing to do with it. 
He used all four Gospels of the Bible as toilet paper to kind of put an exclamation point on that. And then he was in a refugee camp during a civil war and Jesus appeared to him and spoke Swahili. He said, I'm not the God of the white man. I'm the God of anybody who will believe. He hadn't done anything. He was just a knucklehead like you and me. And God intervened and it turned his world upside down. Over in Africa, they call this God of the Bible, they call him Mungu Mwema, or at least in Swahili, which means the good God. That's how they distinguish him from any other God they might talk about. This is Mungu Mwema. He's the good God, the one who seeks us out to do good to us. This is who this God is. So what do we do with that knowledge? Kind of got to this point in in thinking about this. I said, okay, to know that, to know that God initiates, that he pursues us to for our good, how do you and I take that and then make it something that we live from and that, that we experience and that changes how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how we process all that's going on around us? And here's what I wanna say. I think our to-do is to soak in this truth until it changes you like it changed Abraham. And I'm going to give you some ideas of what that might look like, but to soak in this truth. I believe everything I've taught you is true, but I think just knowing it in our heads isn't as transformational as soaking in it until that becomes our experienced frame of reference. I am a beloved son of the king. I am a beloved daughter of the king, and that is my worldview. That is my identity. How do we live into that? Um... You know, when, you remember when we used to dye Easter eggs? Some of you still do, probably got kids at home. And you've got the, the little vats of dye out and the little thing and you put the egg on it. And if you stick the egg in it just for a minute, the blue dye, let's say, and you take it out, the egg's a very light color blue. And if you want it to be darker color blue, what do you do? Just leave it in longer. You just leave it in longer. How do you and I soak up the tent of this love, this outrageous love of a God who loves us for no good reason, except that Jesus gave it all for us. Um, and I'm gonna introduce you to a concept. This has been helpful to me in figuring out how to, how to soak this up in a way that changes me. I'm gonna introduce you to a concept that the Irish introduced me to, and it's the concept of thin places. Any of you ever heard that term, thin places? Yeah. So it it comes from, there's monasteries, places of prayer around the country of Ireland where for centuries people have prayed and prayed and sought God and loved God. And they say, when you go into those places, prayer becomes so easy. It becomes, you feel close to God. They they describe it as it's a thin place where the, the barrier between this world and eternity is very thin because people have been traversing it for so long. What I want to say is you and I each need to find our own thin places. Where are those places that for you and for me, it, seemed, it, it is easier for me to feel this and experience this and live into it? Where are your thin places? We have a chair in a room in our house. It's kind of golden colored. I, a thin place for me is I'm a huge morning person. I get up at 5.30. I go sit in that chair before there's noise in the house, before the, the affairs of the day. I've got my Bible. I read. I journal. 
I pray, I reflect. That's a thin place for me. When we first got married, my wife tried to make that her thin place. She is not a morning person. I, I used to say to her, Christy, not even God wants to hang out with you before 10 a.m. And she just said, okay, well, then maybe I don't, have to, I don't have to take your thin place and just impose it on me. But if you take her to a place where there's natural beauty in front of her and there's worship music, maybe playing on the car stereo, she's like that, that morning glory flower that just opens up and I've never seen anything like it. But she, she studied herself to know that's her thin place. I've got a buddy whose thin place is when he's serving people, helping other people, that is his thin place. I've got other friends who it's when they're out in nature or when they're in their, sm their small group or that this should be a thin place for us here. But what, study yourself, what are those thin places where for whatever reason, when you are in with those people, you're in that place engaged in that process, this, the love of God becomes palpable to you. It begins to change how you see things, begins to change how you see yourself, it begins to change how the stresses of your life feel because th there's one who is with you that is so much for you that whatever is staged against you, you're like, you know what, we can do this because I'm with him and he's with me. But what are your thin places? And lastly, I want to say something just to you, Calvary. I mean, there's that much I would have preached anywhere. But I don't know you guys really well, but I know as a church, you've been through a stretched out season of some transition. And then let's throw in a global pandemic. On top of that, let's throw in a nation that can be in convulsions at different times. That's not easy. But I want to tell you, you're treading some holy ground because like Abraham, God has said to you, follow me into the land I'm going to show you. You don't know all of what that's going to look like. You don't know exactly how long it's going to take, but you, you follow a God who has a track record of saying, follow me into the land I will show you. And he's really, really good at his job really good at his job. And secondly, the, Abram, the Abraham who left Ur was very different to the Abraham who arrived in Canaan. God used that time, this, this Abrahamic journey, this journey of faith to change that man. He, moon-worshiping dude, man of faith by the time he got there but also to say, okay, God, how can I hold this season in a way that lets you change me? What, what, what in me is part of Ur that you don't want going with me into the future? What is it that you love me too much to say, yeah, that's gotta change, that, I wanna change that because I, I'm pursuing you to do you good and that's, that's extra baggage, you don't need it. What is it that God has for you in that way? Brothers and sisters, I'm going to pray that the Lord takes all we've talked about. I, I don't honestly think that any of us are that smart. You can't take home 10 points out of any message. God probably brought you here to get one thing. And what was it today? Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. You are such a good God. Lord, how in the world you, you chose a group of knuckleheads like us and made us beloved sons and daughters. Well, only Jesus could have thought of that.
Only God Almighty could have done that, but you have. And Lord, I pray for each of us, whatever you brought us here to get from your word, would you make it lodge in our hearts and be something that, uh, that we can hold on to, that we can lay, lay hold on and grasp to make it our own. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you.